Hello, my name is Trish Seymour. I'm a hospitalist trained in family medicine and community health who works at the Memorial Campus. I'll be talking to you guys today about quality metrics, public reporting, and high-value care as part of your patient safety and quality improvement interstitial day. This is our first year transitioning what was previously a lecture with slides into a podcast for the purposes of minimizing your lecture time and allowing you to learn on a more flexible schedule. Any feedback on content delivery is welcome. As a warning, this is a very superficial dive into what is a complex topic. We will be applying some of these concepts to small group exercises on the day of the interstitial, so we hope that you're comfortable with the topics at the time that we meet. As background, some of you may be familiar with a report by the Institute of Medicine, which is an arm of the National Academy of Sciences from almost 20 years ago called To Air is Human. This put a spotlight on the epidemic of patient safety concerns in healthcare and the mortality toll that was associated with it. A follow-up report containing strategy to act on this situation was also released by the Institute of Medicine a few years after and was called Crossing the Quality Chasm. This report touched on the many issues related to the need for healthcare reform, but specifically pointed out that making incremental changes alone in the current healthcare system would not be enough to solve this problem of patient safety. The authors called for a complete overhaul of the healthcare system as it was previously known. And a fundamental step in this overhaul would be to change the payment and regulatory environment. This change in the payment and regulatory environment is where quality metrics come into play. We're not going to cover the topics of healthcare policy and reform and legislation in detail. You have another entire interstitial day dedicated to this later in the year. But the Institute opined that by creating standards that are supported by the government and by medical leadership and enforced by payers, we could facilitate the development of an improved and high-performing healthcare system. The Institute zeroed in on six outcomes that we needed to keep at the helm of our system redesign, which included number one, safety, avoiding harm from the care that is intended to help. Number two, effective care which provides services based on the best evidence-based scientific knowledge to date and refrains from providing services that are not likely to be of benefit. Number three, patient-centered care, and this refers to the provision of care that is respectful and responsive to individual patient preferences, their needs, and patient values. Number four, timely care. This pertains to the reduction in wait times and sometimes harmful delays for both those receiving care and for the people providing the care like you and me. The fifth outcome is efficiency. This refers to avoiding waste, including the waste of equipment, supplies, ideas, or even energy. And the final sixth outcome that we're striving for is equitable care. This is care that does not vary between people or patients based on personal characteristics such as gender, ethnicity, geography, or socioeconomic status. In the past, payment in healthcare was more simplistic if a bit misguided where a healthcare provider saw a patient and they were paid for seeing that patient. This is known as fee-for-service. You can see how fee-for-service medicine can propagate bad outcomes and unsafe results because providers are incentivized to see more and more patients. This is even true for large group practices or hospitals, and soon seeing certain numbers of clinic visits or hospitalized patients became part of a physician's compensation packets. These targets were called productivity targets. Even now, in the era of payment reform, most physician salaries are based on productivity still. You can see how fee-for-service would make doctors less inclined to see certain populations. 
Patients that are time-consuming or difficult would harm a provider's productivity and prevent him or her from meeting their targets. Health and Human Services under the Obama administration began working with consumers, providers, and business leaders to create measurable goals and a timeline to move Medicare programs in particular and the healthcare system at large towards paying providers based on quality rather than quantity. And out of these efforts, the Affordable Care Act was born. Some of the example quality metrics we talk about today come from the Affordable Care Act. In summary, the goal of measuring, reporting, and comparing healthcare outcomes is to achieve the aims we discussed in healthcare and the triple aim in particular. The triple aim refers to improving the patient experience, improving the health of the population, and number three, reducing costs. Many institutions have added a fourth aim of improving joy in work and reducing the burnout of providers. I would argue that paying for quality rather than quantity should improve joy and work for many clinicians. Now that you have some background and theory related to the need for quality measures, let's start off by defining what a quality measure is. As you can imagine, there are multiple definitions of quality metrics. The World Health Organization defines an outcome measure as a change in the health of a group or a person or even a population that's attributable to an intervention or series of interventions. The definition that I like best has no known author, but goes like this. Healthcare quality is the degree to which healthcare services for individuals and for populations increase the likelihood of desired health outcomes and are consistent with current professional knowledge. That piece about being current with professional knowledge is important because professional knowledge and evidence-based medicine are constantly evolving, right? So I ask that you remember over the course of your own career that healthcare quality metrics should change as professional knowledge grows over time. Regardless of the nuanced definitions we may refer to, quality measures, including such things as mortality, readmissions, and patient experience, are the quality and cost targets that healthcare organizations are trying to improve. Outcome measures are increasingly reported to the government, to commercial payers, and to organizations that report on quality, such as the LeapFrog Group, Medicare, AHRQ, and also to the public directly. Checking out the websites of these groups that I just mentioned might help you understand exactly what quality measures are and where they come from. Just remember that quality measures help us to define, measure, and address quality in the provision and in the receipt of healthcare. Let's talk for a minute about what makes a good quality measure. Some authorities argue that quality measures are typically evaluated based on four criteria, including their importance, scientific soundness, usability, and feasibility. Importance would mean the extent to which the measure is evidence-based. It should have substantial potential for improvement through intervention. It should be prevalent and significant enough in the population to justify our efforts. And it should have a substantial impact on the patient or community health at large. Basically, we're asking, is this measure evidence-based? When we talk about scientifically sound measures, this is the extent to which the measure produces consistent, reliable, and credible or valid results. The measure should be precisely defined and specified easily interpreted and risk-adjusted as appropriate. So when we talk about measurability or scientific soundness of a measure, we're asking, does measuring this thing produce consistent and credible results? The third item, feasibility or achievability, is the extent to which data required is readily available or could be captured without undue burden and at a reasonable cost. Basically, we're asking, how hard is this measure to be captured? Finally, usability is the extent to which the measure results can be used for both accountability and performance improvement. Or does measuring this thing make a difference or lead to any change? 
Many authorities feel that good quality measures should have external validity too. That means it should ultimately correlate with mortality since that's arguably the most important outcome in the provision of healthcare services. How are quality measures that are used in incentive programs or for public reporting decided on? Well, hopefully all quality measures begin with an evidence basis. Ideally, quality measures should begin with clinical research and link a particular process or structure with an improved patient or population health outcome or improve the patient experience. Many of the things you think of as clinical practice guidelines might meet this requirement. For example, giving a patient with coronary artery disease a daily aspirin is known to aid in secondary prevention, that is, other heart attacks or vascular events. And it's also a marker of quality of care. It's a process metric. There are many different groups that might participate in developing the evidence base, including public agencies like AHRQ, the National Institutes of Health, as well as private businesses such as medical device developers and pharmaceutical companies. Ideally, stakeholders should come together to evaluate the evidence base and reach a consensus. Potential quality measures are then rigorously reviewed by healthcare professionals, professional and academic organizations, consumers, healthcare plans, and hospitals to reach further consensus and endorsement. This process is hopefully conducted by a nonprofit stakeholder. Data is then collected to validate or refute a measure, and this is gathered from administrative claims, disease registries, medical records, and quality data. Ideally, quality data that it's used for public reporting, payment, and other incentive programs, accreditation or certification has gone through this rigorous process, but that's not always the case. Before we talk about some of the common quality metrics used both in private and public payment systems, I'd like to talk to you about what kinds of quality measures exist. The most common and arguably the most important type of quality measure is an outcome measure. Outcome measures are what ultimately happen to patients. These are the big overarching outcomes that we care most about in medicine, including mortality or some disease endpoint like a hemorrhagic stroke. Also under this umbrella would be readmissions and lengths of stay in the hospital. You could presume that a hospital system that has low readmission rates and lower mortality is a better hospital system. Outcome measures are really the gold standard for quality metrics and for quality improvement targets. However, focusing strictly on outcome measures can be far-sighted and is often difficult. The most common type of quality measure is a process measure. Process measures focus on how, within a given structure, healthcare is provided. Examples of process measures might include things like the rate of blood pressure measurement of an adult patient panel at an ambulatory practice, or perhaps the percentage of women in a particular practice that receive mammograms according to appropriate guidelines. Process measures are easier to collect, target, and act on than outcome measures may be. Process measures are very often the focus of quality improvement interventions. Structural measures are also considered quality measures, and these pertain to the characteristics of a system that is providing care. These may be physical characteristics, such as how many ICU beds a hospital system has, or how many case managers work for a particular institution. Finally, patient-reported measures garner much attention in healthcare. We know that patient engagement is important, and the patient experience scores may have some bearing on how concordant patients are with recommended treatments. An example of patient-reported measures in the hospital setting might be the HCAP scores. HCAP stands for the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. There are outpatient satisfaction surveys that are also reported to Medicare, including the CAP survey, which stands for the Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. 
Increasingly, and even more so over your professional lifespan, physicians and other care providers are held responsible for their personal and provider-specific quality measures. Many institutions are struggling to attribute reliably quality metrics to individual physicians. Those of you who have done clinical rotations may notice that the doctors you work with in our UMass EPIC system have physician-specific dashboards as part of their EPIC profile. For example, as a hospitalist, my dashboard includes information about certain outcome measures like my personal rate of mortality and length of stay, as well as process metrics that UMass has deemed important for our system of safety, like whether or not I use standardized order sets when admitting a patient. One of my colleagues who works in obstetrics and gynecology has a dashboard that gives her feedback on her personal cesarean section rate, as well as how quickly the babies she delivers participate in skin-to-skin contact with the mother. Those metrics are available for her to review on her personal physician dashboard. Moving away from provider-specific level of quality metrics and quality feedback, there's a good deal of quality data that is publicly reported. You might wonder what the purpose of publicly reporting a provider or a hospital's quality information might be. The intention is to motivate clinicians in the hospital and healthcare system to continuously improve. Additionally, the public availability of quality measures helps consumers to sort through quality information and theoretically make decisions about where to seek health care. Basically, public reporting is intended to improve healthcare outcomes from several angles. As you are probably aware, there are official places to get information about healthcare quality, such as the Physician Compare Program through Medicare or Hospital Compare, as well as less formal crowdsourced type public reporting, such as Yelp or Consumer Reports Health. It's probably too early for us to say definitively whether public reporting alone alters clinicians' behavior or whether the public finds it valuable for making decisions about where to receive their health care. Let's review some examples of inpatient and outpatient quality measures. We've already talked a little bit about mortality. Hospital-wide mortality is a useful quality indicator because it provides concrete information about the effectiveness of certain care processes and disease management. I think we can agree that in the business of providing healthcare, looking at death rates has value. Additionally, you might recall that we talked about practical and realistic interventions that can change outcomes as a requirement for a good quality measure. There's a huge body of literature around decreasing mortality, particularly for specific disease states. There's some attempt to look at disease-specific mortality rates, but CMS currently uses hospital-wide mortality as its main metric. Of course, there's no expectation that the mortality rate will be zero. Mortality rates are risk-adjusted. Risk adjustments might include consideration of disease severity, the case mix, exclusion of patients who are on hospice or palliative care targets, as well as procedure-specific mortality rates. Of course, as future clinicians, you should be aware that the risk adjustment comes from documentation. If you don't document well enough a patient's comorbid conditions, there's no way for risk adjustment to be considered. Mortality rates are the ultimate outcome measure. Of course, we are talking about episodes of care rendered at a hospital. Mortality is not commonly used as an outpatient metric, though it may have some utility for outpatient practices that cater to certain disease states like oncology. Mortality rates are utilized in several inpatient payment and public reporting incentive programs. Readmissions are also an outcome metric and they feature prominently in Medicare's value-based purchasing program. Medicare uses a 30-day readmission rate, and Medicare does not expect that rate to be zero. Hospitals are compared to national averages based on their observed overexpected rates of 30-day readmission. The thinking is, if adequate care was provided and transitions out of the hospital were well-managed, patients should not return in the month following. 
risk adjustments are made, again, for sociodemographic variables and disease-specific variables. Some critics report that the readmission measure lacks external validity. Specifically, readmission rates do not seem to correlate with mortality rates. And remember, mortality rates are the penultimate example of quality in healthcare. In fact, some reports state that hospitals, which are best known for certain disease states like heart failure, are going to have higher than expected readmission rates because their populations are sicker. Readmissions may be a marker for how sick your patient panel is or how disenfranchised. There's evidence that hospital readmissions reduction program penalizes academic centers which care for the sickest patients and our safety net hospitals. I personally think that holding institutions accountable for transitions has some value. Further, this metric encourages hospitals to build relationships with community-based organizations and to think about the ambulatory care that's being provided in the catchment area. For outpatient metrics, we can look at both private and public measures of importance. There are pay-for-performance programs for most commercial payers, and we'll use some of these as examples from payers like HMO Blue, Tufts, and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Two quality measures being used as examples are both process metrics utilized in pay-for-performance, meaning they are tied to financial incentives and disincentives. The first example I'm going to present to you is colorectal cancer screening. It's this measure which is obtained through claims data that determines how many patients at a particular practice are eligible for colorectal cancer screening, that is to say, who is 50 to 75 years of age, that have had any of the following approved screening methods, fecal occult blood testing during the prior year, FIT DNA, also called Cologuard testing during the measurement year or two years prior, flexible sigmoidoscopy counts as a screening mechanism, or CT colonography or colonoscopy. The goal is that everyone is screened, but performance is measured against bench- benchmarks that are established by a National Committee for Quality Insurance. For example, for this measure, performing in the 90th percentile range means more than 74% of eligible patients got screening from that particular practice. The second example is also a process metric. This is reaching blood pressure targets. Reaching blood pressure targets is another example of a quality metric that's used in many outpatient practices that's also associated with financial implications. This metric looks for members who are ages 18 through 85 who had a diagnosis of hypertension during the quality measurement period and whose blood pressure was adequately controlled. There are specific numeric targets for age ranges and diabetes status, and the last blood pressure of the year is the one that's used. As we just talked about, payment is increasingly tied to quality metrics. We're going to spend some time talking about publicly reported metrics and delve into those which are linked to payment. Many outpatient and ambulatory performance scores come from the physician quality reporting system and are reported on the Physician Compare website. The PQRS is a Medicare-sponsored program that up until recently was optional for physicians receiving Medicare payments. These publicly reported metrics might include performance information about screening for hypertension, recording BMIs, breast cancer screening rates, flu vaccination, or pneumonia vaccination. As you may note, most of these are process metrics. Also included are outpatient satisfaction scores through the Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and System Survey. Additionally, through the Physician Compare website, you can see whether a practice uses the EHR records. The financial penalty associated with PQRS first began in 2018 and reflected performances from two prior fiscal years ago, 2016. This two-year delay is pretty standard with financial incentives and healthcare quality. This penalty is only incurred for practices that did not report any data at that time. This is called the negative payment adjustment. 
The public reporting system I'm much more familiar with as a hospitalist is also a Medicare entity. This is called Hospital Compare, and this database contains information about the quality of care at over 4,000 Medicare-certified hospitals. Critical access hospitals are exempt. This may be the oldest of the public reporting systems and was originally intended to help consumers make decisions about where to get their health care and to encourage hospitals to improve the quality of the care they provided. You may recall that these are the overarching goals of public reporting. Although Hospital Compare is a Medicare program, Interestingly, not all of the quality metrics pertain exclusively to Medicare-insured patients. Much of the outcomes data, including mortality, readmissions, and imaging efficiency measures, are derived directly from claims data, which does mean that only Medicare patients are included in that information. However, several institutionally reported process metrics, such as healthcare-associated infection rates and patient satisfaction, is information that comes from all of the institution's patients and not just those with Medicare. Medicare has done a nice job cataloging this data and posting it for public consumption. You should visit the Hospital Compare website and look at the available measures for the institution that you train at and compare them to other institutions in the area. We'll be working more with this on the day of the interstitial. You'll also notice information on Hospital Compare about how many stars a hospital has. You might learn that there are seven domains in the star rating system, including mortality, safety, readmissions, patient experience, effective and timely care, and efficient use of medical imaging. You can see how many of these measures tie back to the six aims that we've talked about driving healthcare change from the Institute of Medicine reports. The purpose of the five-star system was to simplify public reporting. It was to make the information more digestible for healthcare consumers. Critics of the five-star program state that it simplifies things too inappropriately, and it's actually of limited value to the consumer. The AAMC actually strongly opposes the use of this rating system. They are suggesting that a star rating system exaggerates minor performance differences on these measures. Additionally, please note that over 70% of hospitals are firmly in the three-star tier. With the vast majority in this one section, I'm guessing that it makes the information less helpful for consumers who are trying to discriminate between institutions. We're not going to get too into the role of accountable care organizations, but there are some payment models that span the inpatient and outpatient realm, such as accountable care organization. In this framework, payers and providers share risk and rewards of quality care with cost consciousness. If you'd like to learn about UMass's success with our ACO, please visit our website. You will talk about this much, much more during your healthcare policy interstitial. So we've covered a great deal of content in this podcast, but barely scratched the surface of discussing quality metrics and public reporting in healthcare. I hope you understand a little bit more about how quality measures came about, how they're developed, how they're tied to public reporting and consumer choice and payment systems. It's our collective hope that quality measures can be used to improve our nation's healthcare by holding all health insurance plans and healthcare providers accountable for providing high quality care, by measuring and addressing disparities in how that care is delivered, and in helping consumers make better choices about their care.